0: All right, so before we begin, I would just like to state for the record that today is June 2nd, 2021, and my name is Ben Bauman, and I'm here in Indianapolis, Indiana, and I'm speaking via phone with Graham Richard, who is in, is it San Francisco, California? Correct. Okay, great. And we are doing an interview for the Indiana Legislative Oral History Initiative. So just to start off, when and where were you born?
1: I was born in... uh... Uh, Cuyahoga County, Cleveland, Ohio, and I was born January 1st, 1947, um, and a little uh, community uh, uh, kind of history on that. My father was a sales representative for a gasoline pump manufacturing company that was founded in Fort Wayne, Indiana, called Tokine. My mother had grown up in Ohio, and they met... Uh, at in Wooster, Ohio, where my mother was attending school, and got married, and uh, so I was really a resident and a Buckeye by only about a year. Okay. Before my my father moved back to Fort Wayne.
0: Sure. Okay, and this is, uh, sounds like you had a birthday yesterday. Then.
1: No, I, I I meant to say if I didn't say it clearly, January first. Oh, January
0: first. Got it. Okay, I thought you said June for that. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Perfect. And uh, where was your family from before Indiana and Ohio?
1: Well, my family on the Richard side um, traces the lineage back to Mm Alsace-Lorraine. And uh, the name Richard became Richard when the French
2: controlled that disputed uh, country. Mm. And when the Germans,
1: it was Richard.
2: Okay. So I have both German and French background, but the
1: the history of my my father's family was um, almost six generations in Fort Wayne, Indiana, starting with farming, and
2: then merchants and uh, dry goods, and um, and then
1: my mother's family, uh, the Stillings family, is all from Ohio,
0: okay, uh, around uh, Gahanna, Ohio, and Gambier, and. Uh, Near the Columbus
1: area, lots of um, Woody Hayes fans and big Ohio State commitments. So that my mother's from um, different parts of Ohio, and, and my father's family going back many generations. Fort Wayne.
0: Okay, interesting. And uh, what were your parents' names?
1: My uh, father's name is Arthur C. Richard, and he was a junior. Uh, So he was Arthur Clyde Richard, and um, my mother's family name is Stillings, and she was Anne
0: Stillings Richard. Okay. Did you have any siblings growing up?
1: I had four sisters. I'm the only boy, uh, and I was the second oldest uh, of a family of five children.
0: Got it. Okay. And how would you describe your childhood growing up?
1: I would describe it as a 50s era, very active um, in in the neighborhood and playing basketball and tennis and very active in extracurricular activities at school. Um, It was a period of time where you... um, You had lots of different avenues for pursuing
2: things you like to pursue. I was very active as a church member at Trinity Episcopal Church. I was a Boy Scout. Um, I believe I
1: might have set a record as the youngest Eagle Scout in the community at the time. Wow. Scout God and Country Award winner. And in high school, I was the president of the student body at a time when the baby boomers
2: were just pushing the enrollments in Northside High School through the roof, uh, quite literally. Uh, we had uh, a high
1: school that was built for probably 800, and at one point we had 2,600 students and three shifts. Uh, so I was part of that, you know, graduating in 1965, part of that whole wave of school corporations not having planned to build enough schools to handle the, post-war baby boomer population
0: yeah interesting okay who would you say was the most influential person in your childhood
1: I hesitate with that because um, my father was very uh, not very present because of his constant work schedule and Mm -hmm. volunteer work uh, probably most influential was my mother, um, but I had a lot of uh, opportunities, and a person that I particularly single out was my Jack Root, uh, who was my Boy Scout uh, troop leader, and he owned a camping store, okay. and I really enjoyed spending time there, and then he took us on canoeing trips up into Michigan onto Whitewater. So we would do that four or five times a year. So I I became, he was very much a coach and a mentor to me. Uh, I had uh, a couple of really key teachers that were influential, particularly in high school, and um, the individual who was the assistant uh, to the rector of Trinity Episcopal Church, a gentleman by the name of uh, we called the father, Father Bradley McCormick. Um, and then I would say some contemporaries uh, were very influential who are continued to be friends today, um, who were maybe slightly older than I was, but I worked with them in some capacity. An example of that would be um, uh, when, when I was a Boy Scout camp junior leader trainer at Camp Big Island. In 1965, before going off to college, uh, Bill Smith uh, was also a
2: camp counselor and has been a friend and uh, lifelong
1: friend through thick and thin. So those are some of the individuals. Um, My uncle was a member of the county uh, council and uh, at one point head of the county park commission. My father was on the uh, city plan commission. So at an early age, I went to some of those meetings and got enthusiastic about government, politics, read a lot of um, books on political leaders, and made the decision at that time that uh, I was interested in public policy and elections and, and government.
0: Sure. Yeah, so what understanding did you have about your family's political views?
1: Well, it, 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 at that time, I wasn't that engaged. They were very strong Republicans. Okay. Um, uh, I remember, you know, listening and debating, and um, the election in nineteen sixty four. I was in high school, and uh, a lot of people were supporting Barry Goldwater. I was probably nominally a Republican, mm-hmm. um, and that election with. Back to the Kennedy election in '60s, I was old enough to understand the partisanship um, and the difference between the two candidates and follow it. And uh, read a lot of books about, you know, more uh, history of political figures, but found that to be. uh, I was always a very active reader, still am, Mm -hmm. um, consuming lots of books, and I enjoy historical biographies in particular.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. And growing up, what schools did you attend? Well, we were in that period of time where there was an Indiana
1: uh, school consolidation uh, movement going on, and the township system was still the strong system. So I lived um, within the city of Fort Wayne in St. Joseph Township, which meant that, um, at, at one point I was attending a
2: much closer kindergarten at um, a
1: local school but then uh, nearby Walkable but then the township authority prevailed and I had to be uh, yelled school bus uh, for um, a number of years I think at least four to St. Joe Central School and eventually then the Fort Wayne Community Schools, did some annexation of territory, and then I walked for the fifth and the sixth grade to Francis Slocum, which is, um, you know, less than a half a mile from my residence, and then I attended Lakeside, again, I would walk back and forth, that was close to a mile, and then Northside High School, which is where my father had gone to uh, high school, and all of those were uh, within a mile or mile and a half, but at that time of life, you had, bicycles weren't that popular. You you walked. You walked, even if you run track across country, or you were pretty darn tired uh, after an intense tennis match. You uh, you still walked home with your book bag. <laughs> so it was a it was a great experience to be able to have neighborhood based schools where I uh, knew the neighborhood and knew the students and, um, felt very safe and, you know, very much a part of a community.
0: Sure. Sure. Okay. And so how would you describe your educational experiences overall growing up?
1: Well, let's separate them from sort of pre-college, um, and then college. Right. Yes. Yeah. So, so growing up, um, There was a great deal of um, support in our public school system for learning, for arts, for lots of extracurricular activities. Um, Looking back, uh, it was a relatively segregated, um, I would say significantly segregated environment, and as an adult, uh, there was a magnet school program to help desegregate the schools, So I did not have much of a diversity of experience, but I did have the good fortune to uh, have leadership roles as a class president or student body president and lots of extracurricular activities. So every day after school and weekends, I was involved in uh, speech and uh, tennis and at one point cross country and Uh, student government and civic engagement across the community. I helped to start a number of organizations as a high school student in particular, a citywide youth council, and an opportunity for campaigning to help build a children's zoo. And so there was a lot of activity with, with church, with school, with scouts, um, maybe not quite like we have characterized it today with the helicopter parents who are taking their kids to all the different events, but um, there was still an awful lot of activity um, that was really fun and meaningful in the neighborhood. um, This was prior to the advent of a lot of interest in soccer, and there weren't very many sports for girls, but the the basketball pickup games you know the, the whole Hoosier hysteria I mean even today if I if I were a little bit better shape enough until like four years ago I was I would play basketball
3: yeah it
0: was
1: just just part of the rhythm of my youth
0: sure yeah and and so in school what was your favorite subject? <laughs>
1: Well, it was a it was a cross between um, history and what we would call now social science, okay. and and uh, English. I, I loved particularly uh, literature, reading Shakespeare plays. So I've always uh, those two would be my my favorite.
0: Yeah. Okay. And what were your views about the state of Indiana or being a Hoosier as a child?
1: Well, I think it was. Um, uh, Protected, sheltered, and uh, not until I got into college did I perceive the bias, uh, the racism, the sexism, the,
3: Mm -hmm.
1: you know, a lot of people would say that's conventional old family values. And like many things, there are separations of, um, what shall I say, Strands of truth and strands of unwillingness to recognize. Uh, yeah. Late, later, I learned that, as you know, Ben, that Indiana has a very interesting history. It was the uh, it was a, a state that at one time had more labor unions and um, some of the most forceful labor movement leaders yeah. um, in the United States, and it also had.
3: A very active Ku Klux Klan. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, up in through the 20s. So
1: we, we're a state where you could have the John Birch founded and you could have the uh, Working Party, of Socialists, uh, founded. Yeah. Uh, and those strands um, were evident in our political leadership as well, from moderates to, to liberals to very, very conservative leaders. So uh, I, I sensed some of that. But it was when I went away to college and began to read and study and see other parts of the world that I learned in my own hometown of Fort Wayne that there were um, places where lots of low-income folks who were uh, black were in a sense redlined to live. Right. And um, so that that began a, a whole new exploration of my own community every summer and as I came back from. My studying at Princeton University, sure, in the starting summer, summer of '66 through um, the summer of '69, um, and during that terribly turbulent period, um, you know, my worldview changed drastically, and I found, and we helped to create um, a series of community first volunteer service organizations, and then some um, f- efforts to work with black and white college-age students to tackle the challenges uh, in our own city and become much more concerned about race relations discrimination. We started the Care Again Summer Action Program and a Youth Building Program. Uh, That fundamentally altered my view of my own community by, um, you know, finding great talent, great resources, and tremendous challenges that I just had not recognized prior to my turning roughly the age of 18,
0: 19. Yeah, okay. Now at Princeton, what was your major?
1: Well, they have a system, and it's one of the reasons I was delighted to be admitted to Princeton. That was back when Princeton wasn't uh, all male college, mm-hmm. and and very much in the F. Scott Fitzgerald kind of great, you know, the image of, of Princeton. Right. Uh, and you know, I was prior to my years there, uh, the vast majority of the men came from private schools of, of, of privilege. Yeah. And I was a public school student. Um, I struggled in my first year because I was a bright high IQ person who did a lot of extracurricular stuff in Fort Wayne um, and quite candidly wasn't as diligent as I should have been in some of my subjects because when I got there I got into um, uh, unfortunately academic probation in my first semester Okay, and um, uh, got some bad advice on Getting, I, I took all the hardest courses, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> rather than sprinkling some. and yeah. kind of th- Thought I could handle, you know, advanced uh, calculus and trigonometry and philosophy and just a lot of tough courses. And uh, French, I had to take a. I had no language arts background except for Latin. Anyway, long story short, I was able to. Have much better performance after that first semester, so I was able to compete and be admitted to the what at that time was called the Woodrow Wilson School of
0: Public and International Affairs. Oh, okay. The name has since been changed to the
1: Princeton School of Public and International Affairs due to the um, uh, less than stellar history of Woodrow Wilson in terms of race relations. So the university voted recently to
3: remove his name uh, from that, Right.
1: Even though, he, even though he'd been the president of Princeton University and had been the governor of New Jersey and the president of the United States. Um, so back to the point you were raising, I was able to structure, and why I liked that program, was you could take policy courses in um, the School of Public International Affairs, but you could create at that time through courses in all other different departments, politics, history. I particularly enjoyed a sociology course that changed my, uh, my worldview of thinking about sociology of the future by the first tenured woman professor, Suzanne Keller, at Princeton. And so um, that allowed me to create, then, a an urban affairs sub- major you will say I guess when okay. you look at it and then I could take courses from all these different departments Yeah. so urban design school of architecture, the sociology of the city, I did internships in Trenton um, uh, during the height of some of the worst um, uh, civil unrest uh, in, in that community and same thing in Newark and in Harlem um, I had the opportunity to learn both in the field and in the classroom. Yeah, And it uh, served me very well for uh, all of my life to be a systems thinker and I um, took a course uh, modeled on a course that Ralph Nader had, had, had done on um, he, he said the course had a policy workshop in it and you had to take a problem. Should the United States Surgeon General uh, provide a warning on the cancer-causing uh, detrimental health effects of smoking. Uh, so we would take a particular problem statement and we learned a fast-action way of researching and how to do policy research, which right. uh, had served me in, in
2: all my business and public
1: life because that's the method by which I try to tackle challenge and come up with the best solutions. Um, So that was very, very formative and it came through, you're asking what my major was, uh, that learning experience came through um, the School of Public and Environmental Affairs, because it was the only school at that time, that was before um, the Kennedy School had been established. There were a few others, I think there was one at maybe Johns Hopkins and one at Georgetown and one at Tufts, but most schools didn't have what Indiana University has now the School of Public and Environmental Affairs. Uh, those those were not typical at all. And so Princeton had one of the few.
0: Yeah, okay. And so what did you hope to do with uh, your education once you graduated from Princeton?
1: Well, I came back and I was um, awaiting the outcome of a lottery draft. I chose not to either go into ROTC or enlist um, I was opposed to the Vietnam War, but not to the point where I was, um, you know, going to protest sufficiently to move to Canada. So, um, I ended up, um, deciding at the request of a friend to teach American literature at Bishop Dwayne High School. At the same time, I had taken the LSATs and been admitted to law school. My, um, my father, as I mentioned, was a very strong Republican. Yeah. My, my mother probably was a independent but voted Republican. And as I finished up my 1969 spring of 70 teaching, um, the local Democratic county chairman, uh, because I've been active in the Bobby Kennedy campaign, um, called me on and said, do you want to run for the state legislature as a Democrat
2: mm-hmm. and um, I told that to my father who said that things that were uh, uh, what should I
1: say unpleasant
2: yeah <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah you got a long hair you came back you didn't go to law school I paid for Princeton and what do I get I get a I am Republican. I can't believe it. I mean, I get a, I get a Democrat instead of Republican. What are you doing? This is such an embarrassment. Your uncle will never forgive us. <laughs> um, so, and I was residing at home because I'd been teaching it. You know, I, I think I made
2: $6,000 or $5,000 teaching that year.
1: Yeah. Um, and so he was really upset. Yeah. Uh, and so... I went to talk to the Republican County Chairman, Orvis Beers, and he basically said, you know, you're a nice guy, but you're way too young, you know, 23. You know, no way. You know, you, you just go to law school, get settled, come back, you know, run for the city council, do something local, but the state legislature, nah, that's, you, don't do that. Well, <clears throat> I, chose to run as a Democrat, and um, there were five at-large candidates on the Democratic side and five on the Republican side. And in the September, uh, in, in the election day in November, uh, I was declared, along with the, uh, an upset of the Republican congressman, uh, a Democrat by the name of J. Edwin Rausch, one, Congressional, and there's a big rally at the Coliseum, and I was introduced as the only Democrat <laughs> at age 23 to be announced the winner by, like, 400 votes. Wow. And then by Friday, the Democratic chairman, Ivan Lebomov called me and said, are you sitting down because the final absentee votes, and all of them have been counted, and you've lost hmm. by about two votes per precinct. And you can have a recount, but you have to pay a, a certain dollar amount for every precinct, and the county had a lot of precincts, and I had no money.
3: Yeah. And,
1: uh, you know, I didn't have anybody that was willing to pay it, so, so I lost that election. And then that led me on the path to getting more involved with the state legislature. Um, So that's an interesting entry point, because one of the people who called me uh, just after Election Day, congratulating me on the amazing and outstanding win to have a Democrat elected uh, from Fort Wayne, and his name was Richard Bodine. Okay. Dick Bodine, who had been the Speaker of the House, ran for governor. He was back in working to become the minority leader uh, and work his way you know, back up into the hierarchy of uh, state politics. So he was from Mishawaka, and um, I became a good friend of Dick's, and he asked me to come and consider taking a job, working as a legislative assistant. But then he said, but we really don't have any allocated places, but there's a doorkeeper position. And I'm going to take the doorkeepers that I'm assigned by Doris Dorbecker, who at that time was the chair of the Republican-led Committee on uh, Administration of the house, in a sense. Um, I'm not sure I have the title right, but um, so he hired, uh, you know, a Princeton educated, and a, <laughs> uh, I think a Harvard educated, and a bunch of really bright people to be doorkeepers. And there's a fun twist to this story. So we would obviously do research for the members of the caucus. We would look at bills that have been filed right staff-based in addition to the legislative council and one day i don't know whether it was me or one of the others but representative Dorbecker came out and saw that we weren't just opening and closing the doors that we would be reading things and, and we create a little desk area and we would be writing up memos and yeah, and she went. She went in and literally screamed at Bodine and said, "Those are doorkeepers," because all the people she
2: hired were like, you know, octogenarians. Yeah, with a great smile
1: and a stoop, and you know, had been loyal Republican party leaders. Uh, and we were, you know, back in our twenties and standing erect and giving people smiles and firm handshakes and and researching and she screamed at him and said those aren't doorkeepers those are damned researchers you tricked me Dick Bodine and I'll tell you what I'm going to do I'm going to make them be at the door all hours of the day and so that was her Vindictive move. Yeah. And like so many things in politics, watch out for what you're looking for and watch out for what you do. So that's what we did. We would stand there, we would use the doors, but we could continue to
3: listen, learn, talk, and sneak in some research. Yeah.
1: And so later on, when I got elected to the state Senate, Two elections later, in 1974, and I had, like a, you know, freshman member. I had a a cubicle way up inside the Senate chambers, and even though the Democrats uh, had won quite a few. Seats, we didn't get control. So Phil Goodman was still the president pro tem who was from Fort Wayne. So I'm this new young Democrat, 1974, you know, barely old enough to be qualified over the age of 25. And um, senators and particularly lobbyists would come in and they would sit, you know, and come in, they'd say, Well, I'm here on behalf of them that name their lobbying organizations. And I would have such a detailed knowledge of their legislation, their bills, who they work for. And some of them would I could see them visibly leaving and scratching their heads. and how, how did he know all this? It's like this guy has been here for 20 years?" And I never told some of them. I said, "You know, I'm just there at the door. And I'm just listening, and people were having all these conversations within my earsight, my yeah. eyesight, my hearing, and I filed it all away, and, you know, <laughs> so little did Doris know that she was actually creating a far-knowledgeable potential legislator by what she made us do yeah. <laughs> as doorkeepers in that first session. So, there's a
0: little fun story for you. That is pretty wild, yeah. So, that ended up, yeah, helping your development quite a bit. Um, So, a few things. As you initially became involved in politics, uh, what were the key issues or legislation that you wanted to work on?
1: Well, it was a little different. Uh, in 1970, in the campaign when there were five at large, and it was a whole, you know, county-wide election, yeah. 92,000 voters, as I recall, versus when it was a three-member district. When I ran in '72 and lost mm-hmm. with uh, Steve Frankie and Roger Singleton. Roger Singleton had been the sheriff of Adams County, and he he was an incumbent. And then uh, that year there was a you know a landslide effect, even though we ran very, very far ahead of the ticket of the McGovern uh, National Presidential ones. Um And then, so the issues were different in each of those, but education uh,
2: and, and, you know, creating jobs, retaining jobs, those were issues that were a part of it. I brought in uh, some of the issues around uh, the environment. Uh, I, was, I was always very interested in...
1: Uh, you know, the environmental movement, which was gathering steam with Earth Day and yeah. with, the, uh, with the Nixon legislation to create the Environmental Protection Agency and, uh, and Bill Wackel's house being a Hoosier native that helped lead that agency in its early days. Um, so that was of interest to me. And the other thing that I was always interested in, and sometimes you campaigned on it and sometimes, you know, you didn't because it was. You know, you you campaign in in poetry and govern in prose is the the old adage. Um, So you'd listen to what it was that people were concerned about. But uh, but improvement of government, Mm -hmm. uh, making government work better, has been a mantra of mine forever. So education, the environment, economic development, and um, how you make government work better. And that will come to be a part of what I helped uh, when you asked me the question what did I do as a four-year state senator that I look back on with pride, I can I can cite a few things
2: in the making government work better that um, are still effective today. So yeah. Those are the issues that I care about. Sure.
0: And when you were running your campaign that eventually got you elected, did you have a particular campaign strategy?
1: Well, the, the number one strategy was don't run in a multi-member district. If at all possible, run in a single-member district because of the dilution of your votes across particularly a, a county and a community that was very Republican. So it was hard, hard as a Democrat to run and win in a multi-member district. Okay. Uh, so that's number one. Number two, I had learned uh, in the campaigns in 70, and then I helped manage a campaign for mayor in 1971 for Ivan off and I learned from a wonderful mentor by the name of Matt Reese who was instrumental in West Virginia of putting together a system that now is very commonplace um, but it helped uh, John F. Kennedy in 1960 uh, in the primary win in West Virginia which was uh, uh, you know not expected right. because of the of the nature of that, uh, um, uh, of an anti Catholicism kind of vote. Uh, but anyway, Matt Reese formed a firm, which we, we, the Democratic Pirate hired in 70 and 72 and 71. So I took those lessons and used that in a single member district. And it was basically what today we would call deep one on one politics. I and mean, he had a whole system. You had neighborhood walks. You had goody's. You had coffee days. You had door knocking days. You had your idea was to get seven to ten personal contacts with every voter in your state senate district, and you targeted those voters based upon uh, independent voters um, and what we called the swing voter. Uh, so you know, it's, it was a, an early use of what today is all done. You know. Um, by a combination of social media and um, and door to door and direct mail, so we early on used those techniques. So number one, choose to run in a single member district. Turned out that there was a a non incumbent in that state senate district, <clears throat> so that's also an advantage um, that I used when I ran for mayor as well. Um, incumbents, uh, whether they're members of Congress, state senators, are hard to beat. Unless you have an overwhelming advantage, like money, like a controversy or, you know, an indictment of the incumbent or something. Uh, So that's what I learned, and that was my strategy, and then I talked about the issues that people cared about.
0: Yeah, okay. And do you remember your main opponent? Interesting, I do quite well, because ironically, he had actually made a
1: contribution to a previous campaign of mine, and uh, we were neighbors and our families knew each other. His name was Phil Olson, and Phil was a a prominent local Republican who owned a media um, public relations firm and um, was very well known. Um, There were three things in that campaign that were events that happened. I don't want to call them good fortune, because one of them was not good fortune. So Phil's wife got cancer, and he was less effective as a candidate than he might have been, uh, obviously because of that. The other thing that happened, which was, you know, the Watergate uh, debacle and Nixon's resigning from office, so in 74, there were a lot of independents and Republicans that were willing to uh, vote for a young, a young Democrat.
0: Interesting, okay. Uh,
1: and the third was um, some of the local and national economic trends were hurting the Republicans. And so all three of those things, plus, you know, regardless of Phil's wife's illness, his campaign,
3: was lackluster. Yeah. Uh, and he did not do
1: the door-to-door and all the grassroots. And and by the time I'd run three times, we had um, a very strong base of young volunteers. So we had a lot of him, vigor, and vitality. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, that people knew that, you know, hey, this guy's been, this is his third time out, you know, he, he must really want to become a state legislator and you no, know, let's give him a chance.
0: Yeah, okay. So how did your first election day feel like? Well,
1: it was uh, a very eventful time uh, because uh, my wife Beverly was also uh, pregnant. Oh, okay. And so my daughter, Heather, was born... Um, December twenty eighth, nineteen seventy four. So it was a, a, a suspenseful, eventful, and um, really, uh, I
2: was delighted. Yeah, I was. Lo-
1: I was looking forward to. And I kind of knew the state house well because between jobs, I also worked for the state superintendent of public instruction, John Walken, um, and I did that. Um, after I was the doorkeeper slash researcher um, in the 1971 legislative session.
3: Yeah. So I knew the State House. I, I, I was very comfortable
1: uh, having worked there and uh, had lots of friends, staff people, office holders. Um, so I was excited about the opportunity to get uh, get down there and and uh, get going. Sure. And another startup um, opportunity. I love doing. I love starting up things, businesses. That's another part of my life that I've always engaged in. Um, so, an example during the time that I was doing my preparation to run in '72 and run in '74, eventually. Uh, I started my own company, and I helped to start uh, a cable TV company, a public television station, and I just did, you know, kind of advisory consulting work, which I've done all my life in different forms. We can talk about that later. But yeah, so I was excited about. I, I knew some of the legislation I wanted to be involved, and I already, you know, kind of came in with that experience as being kind of in an internship mode, if you will. Um, And, uh, but, and I'll tell you another quick
2: anecdote, kind of funny story. Um, I got laryngitis
1: and got ill, you know, with the campaign, uh, the birth of my daughter, trying to get situated in Indianapolis, find a place, and all that stuff. So I ended up being okay, but I lost my voice. Uh, You know, I had, Really bad case of largitis. <clears throat> so, uh, like newer members, I had a seat on the very last row of uh, the chamber. And because there uh, weren't enough seats uh, by seniority on the side of the chamber that had the Democrats seated, I was seated on the Republican side. And um, I we had some votes that were taken in that first day. And prior to taking those votes, Senator, he probably will never remember this, and I'm not sure if he's even alive with us today. He's probably passed on. But there was a former educator by the name of King Kelly, T E L L E. Okay. Um, and he was a Republican and uh, tall, slender, respectable, a uh, gentleman, you know, a really, you know. So, on the first day that we were there, before we getting did any votes or anything, he called me over, and, and he said, say, I'd, I'd, I'd like you you know, mine, and you pick up those bills that I've got waiting at the bill room and down at Legislative Council, and when you come back, I've got something else, something else I'd like you to do, and I said, Senator, I'm, I'm happy to do that, and I'm uh, going that way. So, I go, I get the bills, and bring it back, and so forth, and he thanks me, and uh, I think he wanted a glass of water or something. He set up against some water, so I flashed water. And so we're sitting down and we're starting to do our routine roll call and our votes. And I'm, you know, putting the green or the red button on, whatever. And he keeps looking over at me. And then he pulls out this booklet that has
2: all of us, you know, they, they published it, it has your picture and a little
1: bit about your background. And I don't know if they still publish it, but it's a, you know, the, members of the Senate and the the house and you know, where your district is and, you know, just a little, and it's picture. And I see him opening that and looking at it and then his face drops and then he comes over and he says, Senator Richard, I have an apology to make to you. I thought you were an intern. <laughs> I thought you were one of the new interns working for us on the Senate side and that's why I asked you to go do that. And I said, no offense taken, I'm sure there'll be a time that you can repay me.
3: <laughs> wow.
1: And that happened. And yeah. that happened. There was a piece of legislation,
3: non-controversial, yeah. that came up. I, I don't know whether it was to refer
1: to a committee or whatever, but something not. And and he, he he went up and he said... Uh, rise for a point of personal privilege. Uh, my good senator friend from Fort Wayne, uh, 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 Graham Richard, has laryngitis. And he's not asking me to do this. But I'm standing up here to repay a little favor to him. And I'm here uh, to uh, continue to second and support this amendment. And then he sat
3: down. <laughs> <laughs> wow.
1: So, you know, one of the observations I would have about the Senate in 1970, well, we started in 74, but 75, 76, through to 78, is that you could co-sponsor a major piece of legend with legislation with John Mutz, for example, Republican, who ultimately became uh, Lieutenant Governor. Yeah. And you could work across the aisle and and you could even have a disagreement, debates, whatever. And then you could go out and, as I did, play tennis. State Senator Mike Gary and I would play tennis with Lieutenant Governor Bob Orr or John Mutz. Or um, there was a long-standing table tennis um, uh, in the basement of one of the Indianapolis Republicans uh, and, and Democrats and Republicans alike would go over it. Yeah, it was. It was a time where, you know. You had these disagreements, but you weren't disagreeable.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. So yeah, a few things I guess uh to piggy up piggyback off that. Uh you know obviously the political tension today is has certainly been, you know, well known for a lot of people. So uh How do you think politics has changed in Indiana, based on what you just said?
1: I think there's a very specific change that happened. um, It's sort of like the old adage, you know, you you went bankrupt very, very slowly, and then all of a sudden, very suddenly. Mm I think this insensitivity. This. Uh, arch-partisan, this gotcha, this enemy, combat, you know, the more blood you can draw, the more your side is pleased that you did it, even if it's not true that you drew blood uh, by false accusations. So there's three things. One, when I ran for the state legislature, I think my campaign campaign, in nineteen seventy-four, we might have raised about sixteen thousand as I recall. And maybe a thousand of that came from those people in leadership in the Senate who wanted
2: to be the pro town more than majority leader. And
1: you raised your own money and you had your own fundraisers and you know those people who wanted to influence you in some way, may have given you campaign contributions. That started to change when the speaker and the pro-town, the minority leader in each house, started to raise massive amounts of money, millions of dollars, and then turn around and disperse that money to the favored candidates in their party for winning. Yeah. And more and more of the money came through legislative interest groups giving more and more money to the leadership. And you you became as a candidate dependent upon your parties now ten thousand, twenty, fifty, hundred, one hundred and fifty thousand. That gave the speaker, the president pro town the one earlier. In both houses. Massive power. Yeah, And it, in a sense, changed with a small d, the democratization of campaign finance and funding. Because they also would do things like, hey, we're going to buy a, a, a poll, to take a poll in your district. And we're buying it from a polling firm that's going to do polls in 50 legislative districts, and we're going to pay for it. But we may not share all the crosstabs with you. We'll interpret what it says for you in your district. Yeah. Okay, so all of a sudden, you as a candidate don't have the transparency and the, And oh, by the way, we're going to do direct mail. We got how a direct mail firm. And they're going to do direct mail for all 100 districts or whichever district they say, some of them they write off as worthless. And so maybe they're going to choose 60 for Democrats. Well, now that's being produced, mailed, sent out by your caucus and the indiana state democratic party so what does that do it makes it harder for you to ever go against your caucus
3: yeah
1: if the leadership says we want you to vote on this equal rights amendment on this abortion bill on this you
2: know
1: all the controversial bills that we see in the legislature And they they then, there used to be a process where we would vote to have a caucus bind, which means you're expected to vote the way the majority of the caucus wants to. Now, I'm not in those caucuses, but I've been told that it's so perfunctory that if the leadership says this is a caucus bind, they don't even really take a vote because they know they're going to get a majority is going to say yeah we all agree because they're dependent upon what the leadership wants for them to be able to keep a primary opponent out of their campaign being yeah. primaried yeah or or needing the money if you are in a marginally Republican or marginally Democrat if you really have to raise you know I haven't looked at the numbers in this last cycle but it doesn't surprise me a contested race would be a quarter of a million dollars or more well, yeah that's that's just you know, that's a fundamental change in shift. So it's that issue, the power of influence groups, much, much greater, particularly those who have one issue. So the gun lobby, the lobby that's responsible. Some would say on the Democratic side, the labor lobby, the teacher lobby, or the whatever, um, having raised a lot more money and having a lot more influence in elections. So the interest groups are stronger, better, uh in terms of more effective, more impactful. Um, and then the last item is social media. Yeah, um, it, 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 it can create a herd
2: mentality. So if you had in in my Senate district years ago,
1: if you had somebody that was really upset with um, you know, so did I take in or whatever, they couldn't go on next door or Twitter. And have their voice. So it may be one person that is really upset that Graham Richard voted to uh, have a mandatory uh, helmet law. Uh, And they're just furious with me. Well, they're going to tell their friends and neighbors. They're going to tell the people at church. But now they can basically tell every voter instantaneously, immediately in my district. And not only that, they can tell every voter anywhere in the country and that person can say, you're a terrible person. You're horrible. You're, you're, uh, you're, you're, obscene because of whatever position that you took without right. ever hearing
2: what your reasoning was.
1: So you have this social media, um, sort of mob mentality. Uh, that once it gets moving, it's like, it's like a group of people, pardon my reference here, but I'm not going to, Apologize for it. Who go to the Capitol at the request of our president and storm the Capitol. Right. You know, logic does not prevail there because you have. So that's the other factor in politics today that something can go viral and you can be. So it shuts down the ability for open. Discourse, discussion, and hey, hear my side of this. So those are the, the the things that have changed the nature of every election. Yeah, particularly state legislative elections.
0: Yeah, yeah, those, uh, yeah, those points combined, uh, those different factors, definitely, you can see uh, as a as a recipe for for a lot of chaos in the political system. Um, that uh, i you know from. Interviewing several people now, I tend to get the same uh, issues being brought up from people from all sides of the political spectrum. It's, it's actually quite, quite fascinating because uh, time and time again, people are talking about the problem with money in politics, uh, the, uh, to a certain extent lobbying, as well as party leadership's control of dictating affairs, and, and of course social media as well. Of sort of amplifying the political polarization, it's being consistently brought up. Uh, so, it, so it is really interesting to hear about what it was like for people who are serving in a different time uh, compared to today.
1: And by the way, Ben, I don't want to sugarcoat this. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm going to be specific about something that is sensitive.
3: Mm-hmm. Sure. But it's
1: all pub- all public record, Ben.
3: Right. So I'm a young uh,
1: reform-minded candidate. I ran on a whole reform uh, approach in terms of openness in government, open meetings, um, changes in the way we have an ethics code and commission. And I wrote legislation and tried to get a number campaign finance reform. You know, get those hurt. Mm-hmm. And the state senate at the time had a rules committee, and they had a leadership team that was le- led by Philip Gutman, uh, a senator by the name of Gardner, and another senator whose name will lose me right now. Long story short, um, I, all of my legislative efforts were put into that rules committee and killed by the leadership. Chip Edwards was the other name I was trying to think about, I think it was. Um at any rate, all three of those leaders ultimately got indicted, Goodman got convicted and was sent to the Ter Haute to the Federal Penitentiary, because I later was part of a, a group that wrote a letter of supporting him for early early release. So the power of the leaders to protect their interests, and they ultimately all got, if you go back and look at that period of time, uh, one of them resigned somewhat in disgrace, and the other one I think also might have been indicted and and didn't get convicted. At any rate, there were acrimonious, hard debates around these issues that we cared about. Um, so I'm not saying partisanship wasn't
3: there, it was. right,
0: right, and a
1: lot of party line votes, but it's it just it's gone to another
2: level.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's kind of the yeah the sentiment I've I've heard echo over and over again. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> looking at a a different subject for a minute here, just so I can get on the record. Uh, when did you get married?
1: I was uh, we we were married in uh, nineteen seventy. That was my first marriage.
0: Okay, got it. And then you remarried again later. And when was that? Um, that was uh, gosh, um, at least I'm embarrassed. Um, <laughs> no worries. It, it's uh nineteen eighty six. Okay, got it.
1: Yeah, do you need precise dates? Or no, no,
0: marriage? no. I, just, yeah. just so people can sort of get the timeline of your yeah, life and stuff. Yeah, right, yeah. Um, so I, my,
1: first, my first marriage ended in uh, 1981.
0: Okay. And how many children do you have?
1: I have two children.
0: Okay. Uh,
1: I have a daughter, um, Heather, uh, and she lives in the Bay Area. She lives in Sausalito. I have three grandchildren, uh, and then I have a son who was my um, my wife's my current wife's birth son. Okay, and then I adopted him. Sure, his name his name is John.
0: Okay. So now, thinking back to your political career and when you first get started in the General Assembly, uh, what were you thinking for the? when you first walked into the state house for the first time as an elected official in the general assembly?
1: I, I was, I was feeling a sense of kind of hope and optimism that we could
2: do things in government, that we could do things in old, old education, um, that we
1: could do things in improving services back to cities and communities. Um, you know, I, I, environment, all the issues that I've talked to you about, that I've been involved with um, over my life. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I was very optimistic that we could form, you know, uh, form uh, uh, coalitions of progressive Republicans and Democrats. So that was my it was sense of hope and optimism.
3: Yeah. Okay. Having come having come through. You know, uh, the, you
1: know, impeachment process, uh, you know, all the disruption, the opposition to the Vietnam War. I mean, if you look at the late 60s and the early 70s, um, very turbulent time in our history.
0: Yeah. Sure. And so when it came to the legislative process, I imagine given all your prior experience, you felt pretty comfortable with everything going on in the assembly?
1: Well, in addition to knowing where the bathrooms were and knowing a lot of the staff people at the legislative council, I also had the advantage of um, of thinking through how and with whom I would work yeah. to get, get things done that needed to be done. So, for example, um, the, there was a, a, a leadership effort to create a bipartisan commission for making state government work better. I'll just call it that. Right. It had a fancier title. And that was, again, the workings of government. I was very interested in that. So I followed that closely and ultimately became the co-chair of a governmental reform uh, bipartisan effort uh, with Ned Lampkin, on that, who was the majority leader from the House at the time, uh, John Mutz and I and others. And we worked in the interim and we came up with a package of a number of bills. Um, And when I was talking not too long ago with my my friend, um, former uh, Indiana Supreme Court Justice Frank Sullivan, and Frank said, Few people will know, Graham, that one of the things that you did through the chairing of that uh, joint interim committee was to get, for the first time, legislation passed that created an administrative code. And why is that important, Ben? Prior to the work that our committee did, if you, we call it the hip pocket regulator. If you were a state agency and you issued a regulation, you basically had that in somebody's hip pocket. Prior to computers, it was just a piece of paper somewhere in your office. There was no process by which you promulgated that regulation. So we created, in a sense, what today people would say was, and many of the states already had it, federal government did, what was the administrative code. So you kept track of, of, of all the laws that were passed. Yeah. But where were you keeping track of all the regulations that were implementing that law? Right. So, through a lot of work, we got that bill passed. So, you can't propose a regulation unless it's been radically changed. I don't think it has. Without posting it in the Indiana Administrative Code, giving a period of time for public comment hearings by the agency in most cases, and then you have to publish it back in that code, all this is digital now, of course, Um, and make it available to the public. So that was one of the bills. Then we also had a very comprehensive piece of legislation people said never get passed, which was euphemistically called or named the Sunset Law. Okay. So we had, we did an analysis of, over the course of you know three years, I mean, lots of time it took, and, and ended up finding that there were, I, I'm just using an example here, 27 different workforce development programs in 14 different agencies, and many of the agency administrators had no idea that there was another program with with ju- juvenile offenders to get workforce training to get back into the, the working world. And so we had all these overlapping jurisdictions and we had multiple transportation agencies. So the end result was the creation of the Government Organization Form Act, which led to a systematic series over 10 years of the termination of the authority in the state of Indiana statutes. Yeah, And the re-examination, you had to come back and
2: affirmatively pass the authorizing for those
1: agencies. At the same time, we we grouped them, coupled them, like we put all the transportation entities together. That all only got merged into a state transportation agency. Same thing was true with Health Human Services. That all only became a a streamlined FSSA. So over a 10-year period of time, after I left the legislature, that commission had to make recommendations for the reauthorization after all those laws were sunset.
3: Yeah, okay. Sure.
1: So, of the things that I'm really proud of, you know, and then we had some open meetings, open records laws that got passed that are still, I believe, active today. But it was Frank Sullivan who said, people will little know and, and never remember that it was your work that brought this kind of government reform, consolidation, transparency, visibility, open records. And that was all done with, at differing times, one House or Senate of one party and the other of the other party.
0: Yeah. Sure, yeah. That's interesting. Okay. Thinking about your interactions with your constituents, uh, how did you go about understanding the needs and wants of your constituents?
1: Well, the, um, you know, every community has a tradition and uh, the tradition is different, but it's fairly similar in most communities. And sometimes they call it the, the fourth house or the something, they got a snappy name for it. But it's, it's usually this. You come back from Indianapolis, you've been, busy and exhausted it's a Saturday uh, and the local Chamber of Commerce hosts a gathering with the chamber members and all the legislators and the higher up you are in leadership the more important it is for you to be there and be featured and I um, I found that uh, it, it, you know an interesting process I always attended it but it was so exclusive yeah so if, if you you know, if you were a neighborhood association, if you were a labor union, if you were, you know, the teachers union, you were not welcome at that. You couldn't come. So it's very exclusive. So I started holding as a state senator uh, what we would now call town hall meetings, listening sessions, and I would hold them at the library. So I go to that one in the morning, and then sometimes throughout my senate district i'd have you know a fire station a library and a church basement yeah and you know I'd, i i promised everybody i'd come a few opening comments give you a sense of what's happening versus what you're reading in the newspapers uh and uh, the you know they always wanted prognostication what's going to pass what's going to fail and then um it, you know, when the snowstorms came and all the problems get, I would, uh, you know, this is pre-social media. Yeah. So I would also have a 800 number call-in. I would do, I would take calls. I had a lot of systems by which you, if you called me or sent me an email or whatever it was, I would respond within 48 hours.
3: Yeah. Wow.
1: And uh, that was my, and I, I had a an intern, and I had some campaign volunteers that helped me do that. So my goal was always, you know, rapid response.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Wow.
1: We still got a lot of mail then, and I did the same thing. Yeah. I will, I will respond to you. I had one, I shared one intern. And I think drove all of them crazy. <laughs> you, you, we must respond. I want the goal to be twenty four hours. Yeah. But you must respond to anybody who calls, anybody who emails, anybody who sends a hard copy letter. The response has to go out uh, within forty eight hours.
0: Right. Okay. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Wow.
1: And I think we, for four years, I think we were pretty close to that. We we're pretty pretty disciplined.
0: Yeah. That's impressive.
1: Now, if you signed your name on a petition and you left an address, that would take longer.
0: Right, right, sure. Do you remember the first bill that you sponsored?
1: I think it was a campaign finance and and and, uh, you know open meetings and ethics. Okay. I think that's the first one I sponsored. Yeah. Um. Gosh, that's a long time ago. Um, but, yeah,
3: I'm pretty
1: sure that was the first one. Sure. Remember, we just come out of Watergate.
3: Yeah.
2: And,
1: and the whole, you know, hiding and, you know, uh, background stuff, I mean, all of that was highly visible in people's minds.
0: Right. Lots of interest in so
1: transparency. so that, that whole question, you know, common cause was really getting going, and, you know, there's a whole... You know, ethics in government, openness, disclosure, open records laws. So I'm pretty sure that my first bills included a a package that had, you know, that the common cause folks and the openness records. You know, I know we had um, a lot of the journalists and news media organizations clamoring for that. Yeah. You no, know, kind of the, the Freedom of Information Act for Indiana.
0: Yeah, okay. What were the differences between members of the House and the Senate?
1: Well, we had a period of time where the uh, the Speaker of the House was a
3: Democrat. Okay. And, um, you
1: know, that, that was a positive situation. Um, And um, so my first two years, the Senate was controlled by the Republicans and the House was controlled by the Democrats. My second two years, uh, the the Speaker of the House was Republican and the President pro tem uh, was Senator Frank O'Bannon, who went on to become lieutenant governor and then governor. So I was very close to Frank and, you know, I'd helped him get uh, the votes needed to become the president pro tem. And that led to me being appointed a chair of the Governmental Affairs Committee. I mean, he wanted me to be chair of the Education Committee, but I had just run for State Superintendent of Public Instruction in 1976. Uh, there were uh, that's another story, they were desperate for a candidate. I've been a teacher, a member of the education committee, and had worked hard on reforming and changing the school finance formula, so
3: right. um, I was recruited to be that um, nominee. So I ran statewide for that
1: office. So anyways, I had you know, visibility, I worked hard to elect Democratic state senators in 76, and we won the majority for the first time in many years, and the last time since today. I mean, uh, had I been there at any other probably time, I would never have had the opportunity to chair a committee, be a key member of the Appropriations Subcommittee, the Finance Committee, and was on the Natural Resources Committee. um, So by chairing Governmental Affairs, that gave me an opportunity to do the governmental reform work that I just described to you.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So, so the leaders, I mean, and I, again, I worked across the aisle during the time that John Mutz was not in leadership. Okay. Um, because, you know, Franco Banner was. Um, so, you know, it was a period of time where Morris Knowles was the most powerful, one of the most powerful senators in the state because he was chair of the Finance Committee. And then for two years, he wasn't. So, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, your, your question was who is in the leadership? Um, so, um, I'm trying to think of the, I just lost his name. The speaker from 74 to 76 was, uh, from Lake County, um, and then Kermit Burroughs was the speaker after that. Right. Um, and then, as I said, uh, Joe Goodman, And then after that, it was Frank O'Bannon from, in the Senate. So after the 76 election, so for 77 78, the Democrats had uh, leadership of the Senate.
0: Right, okay. Got it. And so... When the Democrats didn't have leadership, especially, how did you garner support for your legislation? How often did you have to work across the aisle?
1: Well, as I say extensively, because you're not a successful legislator if your bill passes the House but can't pass the Senate or the Senate, not the House. Yeah. So I, I understood that from you know being an intern and campaigning for the legislature. So from day one... Um, I did something that some people uh, think about doing but don't actually execute on, and I, I called it, you
2: know, take a legislator to lunch, okay, uh, and
1: or breakfast. So I made a point of having a breakfast with anybody that would, or lunch, one on one, who was, and this happened over a period of years, a Democratic senator, a Republican senator a Democratic House member, a Republican House member. I attended all the events that were gathering for, you know, there's there's always four or five receptions every night. Uh, Back in that time, particularly. Lavish receptions from every trade association that ever existed. So, you know, you go to the chiropractors, the funeral directors, uh, the... Volunteer firefighters, uh, the, whatever it is, that night, and I would make a point of going up and introducing myself. I take that little book with the photos of the House members. Yeah, and memorize it. The Senate wasn't that hard because you're there. You know, you know the Republicans. Right. there are only fifty of them, <clears throat> and so I would make a point of introducing myself and trying to ask them questions. Be attentive. Listen. And then if there was some interest, say, well, I'd love to catch lunch with you sometime. So I was doing that purposefully to build trust with key legislators. Wow. And then for my my counterparts, so for the House governmental affairs committee counterpart, I, I oh you know, we had summertime joint governmental affairs. This is our whole reform for, you know, and I was carrying that. And there were independent members, and, you know, like I mentioned, um, we had key members from the House and the Senate on part of that government reform commission. And um, then that gave you a chance away from the legislature to have a, a meeting that might maybe go two hours, three hours. And then, so for example, Ned Lambkin, Dr. Ned Lamkin. Yeah wonderful human being, um, and his wife, Martha. Um, he was the majority leader when Kermit Burroughs was the speaker. And he was also appointed to be on this. He also was interested in government reform. So we've to be respectful. I think trusted friends. Yeah. And uh, when the legislation was starting to get hung up, um, uh, in the house he was instrumental in keeping it moving because the Democrats didn't control the house.
3: Right. Right.
1: So that's what, you know, I mean, look, this all then comes down to leadership and you can choose to be a collaborative leader, a consensus leader, a cooperative leader,
2: um, or, and I'll use my favorite example now, which is
1: a leader, um, Senator Mitch McConnell mm-hmm. who just brazenly says, yeah you, you know we're going to do everything we can to stop
3: Barack Obama from getting any credit right're we're gonna, we're gonna just attack and
2: undermine Obamacare what
1: And he's doing the same thing book he's basically told people my, my agenda, is to get back in the majority and I do that by making sure that Joe Biden doesn't get his bills passed.
3: Yeah. Yeah. So,
1: you know, you can choose to be that kind of leader and we have them on the Democratic side. I'm not, but, right. you know, uh, but back then, you know, I would say it was leadership. There was a, a group of us who said, it's better that we get these things done than just beat each other up so I can Win the next
0: election. Right. There's a lot, a lot more people, I guess, in the past that were willing to work together for sort of a common interest of just trying to make government run more efficiently, versus more so today, it's, it's more of a power struggle. Uh, yeah. Wow. So, did you have a, a pretty good sense of how people would vote prior to actually voting?
1: Well, I'll I'll tell you another story. Yeah. That um, I think it came from King Telly. I can't remember, but it was a Republican. In that first couple of months when I was, well, you know, I was looked like a college student. Um, yeah, I was in the Senate. Um,
2: I asked a question, and I said, "So."
1: Why do you respect a senator on your, in your caucus? And why do you respect a senator that's in the Democratic caucus? And he said, look, I'm going to give you some advice. Never go to that microphone without asking yourself these three questions first. One, Will my speaking on this persuade anybody out there to change their vote or vote my way? Two, has it already been said before? And three, can I say it in a way that will command attention and people will actually listen? Yes. Yeah. If you can't do that, then don't go up there. Because when you do go up there, people will stop what they're doing and they'll listen. Because you aren't, you know, you're not the traditional order. And then in a separate conversation,
2: we were talking about that first question, will my speaking out change any votes?
1: And he said, You still have senators who have been here a long time and they've never learned the first rule. Learn to distinguish the difference between a compliment and a commitment.
3: Yeah.
1: You will get all kinds of people that will compliment you on your bill and so forth. That's not a commitment. And You have to learn to distinguish, and then you have to learn when is it really a compliment? When I mean, when, when is it really a commitment? Well, how do I know? And you said there'll be some senators that their word is their bond. There'll be others that you'll only know as a commitment when they've publicly said it, or when a lobbying group lists them as a supporter or an opponent of the bill they care about. Yeah, a public, as a public demonstration. And every senator is different, but you know you have to learn that skill.
2: You have to learn to under. You know it's the old Tip O'Neill. You know you
1: you don't have to have a calculator, but you better have a head to count the commitments. You got to know who's for you and who's against
0: you. Sure. Let's see. What would you say the public does not know about the Indiana General Assembly and how it operates? It is really
2: difficult today to be a profile-encouraged senator Mm -hmm. because of the
1: need for reform of the campaign finance system. Money rules. Campaign contributions. That's they don't they don't the average voter does not
3: realize the power of the pay and play system
0: mm-hmm
2: need reform yeah
0: Bob, you talked a little bit about earlier about how you you know basically were starting a family when you first got elected. Uh, how did your legislative service affect your family life?. <laughs>
1: Well, I think uh, it was um, ultimately not healthy, and it was less legislative service, although you are away for some time from your family, even though it's, you know, two and a half to three hours by car, depending on the weather, from Fort Wayne to uh, the Statehouse. For me, what was detrimental to my first marriage was uh, being personally and professionally consumed in perpetual clam uh, campaigning okay so i was a candidate in 70 i was i managed the campaign locally in 71 lost the campaign in 72 got elected to the state senate in 74 was the democratic nominee for state superintendent in 76 and then Instead of seeking re-election in 78, I ran statewide for the nomination for lieutenant governor. So it was ambition and the, the consuming uh, of, of being involved in politics, you know, all pretty much before the age of 30.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Um, what would you say was the most controversial legislative issue during your time in the General Assembly?
1: Well, the one that was the highest and most visible was the legalization, uh, you know, the ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment. Uh, yeah. I think we were the last state up until Virginia to, uh, sure. and a one by one vote in the Senate uh, for the, uh, you know, the, the Indiana vote to. Right. A couple of others that, you know, kind of are. Um, I mean, yes, you always had tremendous interest in bills that affected the labor, uh, the, the labor laws and the collective bargaining rights and you know those sorts of issues, because um, there could be a large rallying of a significant number of people. But some that were localized that got a tremendous amount of uh, heat and visibility. Um, I remember Joe Brugenschmidt was uh, the chair of the uh, Senate Natural Resources Committee at that time, which had environmental. didn't have any energy issues, those were in another committee. But um,
2: yeah. the, the,
1: the land acquisition strategies and approach around the Hoosier National Forest and other federally controlled forest lands had gotten so um, challenging because there were some townships and even whole counties that were losing their tax base as property would become available. there was an agreement with the federal government that they had the right to buy that property and exclude other private owners uh, from being in that process. So that whole it was characterized as eminent domain. It, it, it had an element of that eminent domain to it, but it wasn't really pure eminent domain. We had intense debate. I mean, that surprised me more than anything. I mean, the name calling, the fist shaking, the you know, whoo, yeah, um, and uh, large contingent of people coming in to protest it. That. So that's an example of an issue that got very hot, over and above you know the the big issues of financing for public education and, um, you know, some of the, I know one piece of reform legislation that has been coming around forever was the uh, abolishing local township trustees
2: and local township, or or, or allowing that to take place Mm -hmm. by a county
1: vote uh, to streamline local government. And, um, you know, a lot of people really want to keep their township system of government, and particularly those that are the office their assessors and trustees. So that would always be a big, a big issue.
0: Yeah, sure. Now, you mentioned the Equal Rights Amendment. Uh, to what, what role did you have in the Equal Rights Amendment and the debates going on?
1: Well, I was very strongly in favor mm-hmm. of, and, and, and came out early and strong saying I would vote for the Equal Rights Amendment. But, I remember this vividly, there was a tall, lanky lawyer, senator from Bloomington, Senator Pat Carroll, and there was a, he was a, had his own law practice, and there was a, a shorter, you know, give Hill, hell Harry kind of Democrat Eldon Tipton from the Terre Haute hearing,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, the two of them thought over a lot of things but Eldon had uh, unlike Pat and I Pat and I had committed on all the surveys and all the you know women's rights accuracy groups that we were going to vote for, so we were kind of left alone because we were not persuadable to change yeah. the vote yeah. by the by the Phyllis Schlafly uh, other folks. But Eldon <coughs> told one group during a campaign that he was for the Equal Rights Amendment, and they told another group they was they won't vote for it. So this only passed by one vote. Yeah, and I think the New York Times others were calling, and instead of interviewing... <laughs> Pat Carroll, or Graham Richard, who have been ardent advocates, they always went to Mr. One
2: Vote, who claimed that, you know, he he was the reason, he was the reason (laughs) that the
1: Equal Rights Amendment passed. So he got invited to the Nile Conference and was celebrated as this hero from Indiana. Yeah. Even though he was on the fence, and he told both parties up until the vote, <laughs> That's funny. That he was, he was, <laughs> so was the, And Eldon will have a different story, but he and yeah. Pat were both in the same caucus. Both in the when one of the other would start to speak, the other would leave the caucus. It so got that bad.
0: Wow. And, and they just
1: couldn't couldn't tolerate to hear each other.
0: Yeah. So that's interesting. What would you say were the 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 main arguments on each side for or against the Equal Rights Amendment? Uh, during your time,
1: well, I think um, the arguments for it have been pretty consistent, and you know, Birchwey was the author of that amendment, and um, you know, it's like, why shouldn't women have the same rights that men
2: have? Yeah,
1: voting rights, owning property rights. Uh, back then, there were many states and policies that a woman couldn't get her own credit card. It had to be in her husband's name.
3: Wow. She couldn't have her own credit. She couldn't
1: borrow. She couldn't buy a house. She couldn't, I mean, you know, depending on where you were. Now, those were imposed, sometimes by the financial institutions, sometimes by laws, by custom, by tradition, practice. Um, on the, uh, you know, one of the reasons Phyllis and her whole um, Eagle Farm got so is they began to get women to turn against it because they said, "Oh, you know, you have this and you're going to lose uh, your uh, entitlements to your your the the, the pensions. Your, your your husband dies and you're not going to get pensions anymore because he writes you know that." Yeah. So t- tremendous misinformation, just outright disinformation. Okay. Uh, about what the law would do, and that got a lot of people scared. And they were saying, Oh, I don't gee, I don't know, I don't I don't want that. And so, you know, we would say equal pay, equal work, and they would say, Well, you know, this happens and you you know, you may not be able to get that job because they can't afford to pay you that. So there'll be no job there for you at all.
3: Hmm. Okay.
1: So all of it So those were I mean, I'm boiling those down to Yeah. The bumper strips, but, you know, it was that kind of discussion. Right, yeah, I understand. I mean, there's a, there's a whole other dimension to it, which you
2: can read about, which is, you know, God did not choose you, you, you know, follow the commandments. Uh, you know, yeah. Be obedient. I mean, it's the same thing
1: that main officiants at uh, weddings that are fundamentalist Christian weddings. It's like, you know, be obedient. That was the word, obedient. So, equal rights, yeah, you know, look, you're, you're supposed to do what your husband says. You know, you know, you, you know.
0: Right, wow. Yeah, that's interesting. What would you say was the biggest hurdle you had to overcome during your time in office?
1: Um, persuading skeptical people, not cynics, because cynics don't usually change their mind. Yeah. To embrace um, a change, a new law, um, and probably look to the public, but also other legislators. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, it's hard for somebody to change something that's been heavily benefiting them.
0: Right. Right. What, in your opinion, is the most important work of the Indiana General Assembly?
1: I think it is in the budget and in major um, legislation that affects the the health, the safety, the welfare, the economic growth of the state. It's setting forward in the law the kind of direction that's important for the state. Right. In those major issues. And so the law becomes the embodiment of what your leadership values. Yeah. Sure. And so to me it's it's trying to move our state in a direction for health and well-being and safety and education. If you look at the biggest dollars that are being spent, that's why I say the budget, the budget is you're your in, when you when you sit down in your household for the given month of the given year, and you allocate your dollars, if you decide you're going to spend it on a vacation, if you decide you're going to prioritize saving up money for college education, if you decide you're you know, going to... Uh, part of business or you're getting ready to buy a home you, you've set the priorities for your household by that budget yeah and so in Indiana there's a massive amount of money that goes to education of all levels. there's a massive amount of money that goes um, to what we would call the human service uh, social service uh, retirement benefits or medicare our Medicaid commitment, all of that. So, so you're you're really setting the direction for the state by those policies,
3: right?
1: So that's what I think is really important.
0: Yeah. Okay. All right. We're down to the last uh, handful of questions here. Um, wh- why did you leave the Indiana General Assembly? What exactly uh, happened?
1: I knew that I could not run for statewide office, and be a good senator. Okay. Some people do that. I I couldn't. I went through that in a shortened version in 1976 when I really only started campaigning just before the convention at a short summertime campaign season into the fall. But having done that, if I was going to um, pursue higher elected office. I really had to do it 100% full time and I didn't think it was fair to my constituents. So I began doing some of that yeah. uh, in 78 and some in 79, but it really got going in 79. So, um, you know, the 78 campaign for reelection. Would be different because you're, you're it's kind of congruent to your existing Senate work. But I would be going all over the state. Sure. So okay. that's why I didn't. Uh, and and then that gave me time to campaign full time in '79 and '80. Uh, second reason, I um, I enjoyed the convening and being a committee chair. Yeah, I'll give an example. There was an issue that had been around for a long time. And it was the territorial disputes over the rural electric cooperatives, the investor-owned utilities, and the municipal electric utilities. And whenever there was an annexation of a city by other property, the question was, who would serve, and what were the boundaries? And this has been a battle for, oh, two decades. So I was the chair of the Committee of Jurisdiction. And along with my counterpart in the House, we got together got together, and said, look, let's get everybody who has a stake in this in the room, about 10 people, and say to them, we are the committee chairs of jurisdiction in the Senate and the House. And if you don't come up with a system once and for all For resolving this, the two of us will get a bill and we'll get it passed, and we're not sure any of you will be happy.
3: Hmm, Okay, yeah. Get
1: it done. Well, people said that could never happen, and we did it. Wow. So that's leadership. And there are many times, and as a committee chairman, you know, you you still have to always use persuasion, but you do have some caution. I knew that the Democrats were not likely to win and keep control of the Senate. And I didn't want to be a minority legislator.
0: Yeah, okay. Sure. So how would you summarize your time as a state legislator overall then? It was a
1: magnificent learning experience. Because you could be reading uh, information, debating on...
2: Multi billion dollar school finance formula, legalization of
1: Leitril, uh fire code safety requirements, uh, community development and housing, um, uh, the legalization or the authorization of recombinant DNA research. You can be doing all that in one day. Yeah. So as a young person, there is, I mean, I learned more about banking. I learned more about finance. I learned more about insurance, about medical malpractice insurance, and all this stuff. I would never have learned that. So for a guy that loves learning, yeah, the greatest, if a young person comes to me and says, I'm thinking about running for the legislature, I always urge that. If there's a, a decent shot we need to do it, because you will learn so much so fast.
3: Yeah that's true. Yeah.
1: So it is so for me I'm a lifelong learner. That was part of my most important laboratory for lifelong learning. I made relationships that I have to this day. Republicans, Democrats. I learned the functional part of government at the township level the legislative level, city government, all that came from that time. And I look at the whole experience, not just the four years I was a state senator. Because you learn while you're campaigning. You learn while you're an intern. You learn while you're uh, an assistant in the superintendent's office about the whole educational system. Yeah. I I I, I would not have been asked to, get, to, to co-chair a very valuable commission for me by uh, Evan Bly, and then Franco Benton and then Joe Kernan, which was the state's, what, what at that time was called Human Resource Investment Commission, is our workforce board. So by chairing that, we had all the agency heads for over I don't know, more than a decade, I think it was almost 12 years, uh, where I was listening and learning about welfare to work new workforce programs, economic development trends, all of that through. And, yet, and then, then I was appointed to numerous boards and commissions. Um, I helped to start um, a, 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 a new business ventures. that was funded by some funding. And all those connections and relationships, before I ran from Air four Lane, came from, you know, knowing Frank Abandon. Uh, knowing the people that I worked with, and they said, "Oh, great!" I, you know, in fact, I was asked by
2: uh,
1: Evan Bies' folks to to become the first uh, executive director of the very first lottery. I turned that down because I was, you know, I had um, I didn't have the time to take a full time job in Indianapolis at the time that was offered to me. Sure. But my point is this: it's it's for so what did I learn? That was the foundational building block for many of the private sector. So I'm now I was an investor at Mohead Hydro and Cogeneration. I'm now an investor in all kinds of clean energy technologies <clears throat> because I understood federal public policy, how it affected state public policy as it relates to clean energy. I understood what the you know, Indiana Utility Regulatory Commissions did, yeah. whose jurisdiction was, and what PERPA meant. And all, so it, it was, again, this laboratory of learning that opened many, many more opportunities for more learning.
3: Yeah, yeah.
1: And I was a much, much better mayor of Fort Wayne, Indiana, because I understood the inner workings of state government. I knew how I knew which lobbyists to hire. I knew what to go after, how to work with it. With the Republican committee chairs in the House and the Senate, I understood how to leverage public and private funds to get things done in Fort Wayne. I I was a co-sponsor way back when in what was called with Senator Bob Kovach, Mr. Walker at the time, and others, which was called tax incremental finance. We had one of the first programs in the country that was critical for economic development incentives and strategy ever since we got that passed in like 78.
0: Yeah. Wow. Now, did you have any regrets as a legislator?
1: Well, you do. Um, there are times when I think I might've been able to be more persuasive by being less um, being a better listener, Okay. And understanding what's behind an emotion or a comment from a legislator. Yeah, and then accommodating that, compromising hearing and incorporating that to get a bill done better faster. I was not a terrible listener. But I've always been a talker, and I've sometimes gotten the reputation of trying to sound like I'm the smartest guy in the room, and I think that's a fair criticism. Uh, so I have a regret that I didn't mature a little faster in understanding that getting a good outcome getting a well-formed outcome is much more important than making your point and having people believe that you're smart.
0: Yeah, sure. Many
1: of us in politics suffer from that arrogance.
0: Right, right. So what advice would you give to future legislators or even current legislators?
1: Seek first to understand and listen. Uh, What is it that really is is behind the emotion and the motivation of somebody who is a skeptic about your legislation? Ignore the cynics because you're not going to convince them. Um, And then the other is treat every learning experience as not an end but part of a process. So, for example... I never gave up on a legislator who said, "I hate that bill. I'm going to do everything I can to beat it, Graham." I never personalized that. I learned to get up. It took me a while to get up, uh, kind of as though you were on a balcony and looking down on yourself and others, and you're you're able to get some detachment. Okay, I understand. You're not with me on this bill. Right but on the next bill, I want I want you to know that there's goodwill
2: on my part. And let's 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 talk
1: about you know our differences on the next bill and maybe we'll be together. That is hard, hard, hard to do when people exchange bitter, nasty words and put things on Twitter and say them out to the world. Really yeah. hard to do. But we need that more than anything. Because the person who's against you on one bill Maybe
0: for you on the next bill. Yeah, I understand.
1: So that's my advice. Try not to personalize it. Try not to personalize
0: it. Let's see, last couple questions here. Uh, What, if any, enduring qualities do Hoosiers still have or hold dear?
1: Would you repeat that again? I could not hear
0: it. Yeah. Uh, What. If any enduring qualities do Hoosiers still have or hold dear?
1: Well, I think uh, it's hard to generalize. I think you know Hoosiers are a wide range of people. We talked about that earlier. I mean, yeah. You can have a uh, you can have a person of the same political party. Let's take you know say um, Bill Russell's house versus. Mike Pence, they're both Republicans Yeah, uh, and they come from different eras and they have different beliefs and they exercise those political beliefs differently Um, so what I would say is this I think that most of the people that I know on whatever political perspective value trust they value authenticity they value even if they don't agree with you at all your willingness to be respectful uh, of the character of another person, even if you really, really disagree with them on a fundamental level, yeah. So I, I think those are values. You know, as as a mayor, I worked very closely with my Republican colleagues, and after being a mayor with the Republican Mayor Greg Ballard of Indianapolis. So you find the common ground and you work from there. And helping a single mom post-COVID who's got three kids and two low-paying jobs and is absolutely struggling to pay her utility bill and her rent should not be viewed as partisan. Right. we got to find a way to reduce the energy burden and uh, help that person, you know, build some assets and resources and, you know, move up the economic ladder. I, I really, When I talk to my very conservative Republican. it's the question of how you do that, that we have a disagreement over. Well, let's find a place where there's some common ground. Yeah. So that's what I would say. I I think the vast majority of people that I know over my life respect, find some common ground, try not to personalize it, try not to demonize it, try not to say, you know, you're a horrible person because you believe that.
0: Right, right. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. Um, Last question. What do you want Hoosiers to know about their role in relation to the function of the Indiana General Assembly?
1: Well, number one, it is a very important office, and state legislators are some of the most accessible public officials you have. So what I want them to know is, don't be afraid to call up, old-fashioned, call up. Go to a meeting, organize a meeting with a legislator and just have a brown bag lunch, a coffee once we're out of COVID, a coffee clash. Or, you know, organize an online gathering uh, if you need to with, with your neighborhood association, your church group, your social group. Yeah. Get to know your legislator. Yeah. Tell them what you care about. To keep the channels of communication and trust building going, it's so simple. I would make presentations to business leaders in Fort Wayne, and I would say, "This is before and after I was a legislator." I'd say, "What's the name of your state representative? What's the name of your state senator? When is the last time you communicated in some direct way?" with that person. Right. Why why not? Why haven't you done that? It's a low lift. Doesn't take much. Thank you so much, Ben. It's been wonderful.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I I appreciate forward
1: to hearing more about your history. (laughs) Yeah. I'd love to hear it.
0: Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time to uh, take part in the project. Uh, it should be a great addition. Um, you had so many interesting things to say. So thank you again for taking the time.
2: Thank you, Ben. Bye-bye. All right.
0: Take care. Bye-bye.